Welcome to Footloose, the podcast where we chat with people living unconventional and nomadic lifestyles. I'm your host, Tim Bull, and I hope you'll join me as we hear stories from travellers from around the world. So this week, uh, we're here in Egana still, and the other day we were at a cafe, Cafe Tortuga, which is just down the end of the street where our house is, and we happened to see and hear someone talking to the waiter. Uh, and we, we recognised that accent as being American, looked over and uh, waved, and there was Dave. And Dave came and joined us at the dinner table, and we had a wonderful conversation. And uh, this is exactly really what I wanted to do with this podcast. It's always been about talking to nomads, talk about people that are living unconventional lives. And immediately as I, I spoke with Dave, I... Um, I kind of reached over and I winked at Karina and I said, I really want to get Dave on the podcast. But I probably it's probably not the first thing that you ask someone when you meet them. But we had dinner again later in the week and uh, the, the opportunity came up and I asked Dave and he kindly said yes. So Dave, welcome to the podcast. It's a Thank pleasure you. to meet you. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, so I like to start with just a general question, you know, about you know, what is sort of your experience traveling? I mean, obviously you're from maybe not obvious to everyone here, but you're from Montana and, and you're here in Greece. Um, so you're not afraid of international travel, but what was your first experience of kind of getting outside of, of Montana and traveling? Oh, gosh. Um, I grew up on the East Coast in North Carolina, and the American culture kind of puts emphasis on travel for for you to progress economically as a child from your family and then move to another state for a job opportunity. So Mm -hmm. it's a pretty Mm -hmm. mobile society anyway. But um, I was very fortunate. My grandfather was a Baptist minister, and somehow we lived about a five-hours drive from the coast. Somehow he was able to afford to buy a beach house when I was very young. And so, and also since he was a minister, he could he could really take long vacations, mm-hmm. you know. So most of my summers I actually spent at the ocean on the Inland Waterway in North Carolina. Okay. And so so my youngest memories of travel, my grandfather was a lover of really fast cars. While he was a very conservative minister, he loved to drive like 100, 120 miles an hour. Wow. So, um yeah, and so like as a five-year-old, and his thing was he would he would travel to the coast, and let's say it's a normally a five-hour drive. Right. He would travel by himself, and he would do it in say four hours. Well, okay. then when he and I were traveling, or if he was traveling again by himself, that was the standard that had to be beaten every time. So okay. it had to successively <laughs> be faster and faster and faster. And since he was a minister, when you drive that fast, you're going to get pulled over by the police sooner right. or later. And so. Since he was a minister, he would talk his way. I saw him talk his way out of maybe ten tickets in my lifetime. Just wasn't even an issue. He'd get out in his suit. He'd always wear his minister suit, yeah. you know, and he'd get out and have a discussion. But we couldn't stop. So in that five-hour trip, as a five-year-old, I was handed a bottle <laughs> that I urinated in, yeah. and we went about a hundred to hundred and twenty miles an hour. I don't know what that is in kilometers per hour. Hundred twenty miles an hour. Pretty damn is fast. Pretty damn fast. I think that's like hundred and sixty kilometers an hour. Or something. Okay. It's, so that it's, was it's my dangerously fast. Yeah. So I had a lovely summer, you know, at the beach, but the the trip there was was quite. Um, it, I, it was exhilarating. I, I inherited that that uh, appreciation for going really fast okay. from my grandfather. And so that, that's sort of obviously some of your earliest memories of travel. But uh, 
you know, when did you sort of first get outside of the US? I guess step outside of your own culture. Oh gosh, I did not do that. Uh, because within my culture, you know, we're encouraged to travel domestically mm-hmm. big time. Right. And then there's there's a little bit like especially in the middle class, there's a little bit of trepidation about leaving your your giant home turf. Yep. And so I went to Canada like as a junior in high school, we took a trip to Montreal and mm-hmm. I, and I had never been to a you know, they speak French in Montreal and I'd never been somewhere different culture. And so I'm a big foodie, so, you know, the croissants and <laughs> the French baked goods, they yeah. were fascinating for me. Yeah. But that, and did that, uh, they obviously didn't scare you off that, of, you know, instilled like a love of wanting to continue to travel. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. 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 I, I love trying to understand their accent and um, just being, you know, for me, Tim, it, I enjoy being slightly uncomfortable. That's like part of my thing, mm-hmm. you know. You learn to be comfortable with the uncomfortable, and it gives you an inner strength to me that is just so strong, so so dependable. Yep. And so I've made myself to be un- slightly uncomfortable so many times that it's really difficult to it's really difficult to put me in a situation where I, I, I uh, lose my uh, excrement. <laughs> <laughs> so. Going, going back then, I know um, and this is relevant to what you're doing now, which is that you were, uh, for a number of years, you were a farmer. And so how did that kind of come about? Because was that a family tradition? Were your parents farmers? Or this is something that you got an interest in? Uh, it wasn't a family tradition as far as commercial farming, but my grandparents, really my grandfather, um, my grandfather was the cook in the family. My grandmother was a beautiful, uh, highly educated woman, the only one in my family to get a college degree besides me. Oh, wow. Yep. And that still stands to this day. Um, and, I, and I have a pretty large family. But uh, my grandfather and then, and then my mother was their only child, and he handed down the skill of gardening. And he always did a big garden, like a, maybe a half acre, which would be pretty big yep. yeah yeah yep. so um i grew up you know I, I learned to love a really good homegrown juicy thick tomato at like five or six you're probably and, very happy with the tomatoes you're coming across here in greece then yes they they remind me of what i grew yeah. up with they're yeah. they're very similar now that i'm a tomato aficionado red is the worst tasting color of of the tomato spectrum and so but these are very high quality red tomatoes they're probably some of the best i've ever had and so um, I learned to garden, and then I'm just really into food. You know, like a tomato sandwich to me is, that's the definition of summer. Bread, mayonnaise, salt, tomatoes. That's still probably one of my favorite meals and, of all time. And, um, and so when you started farming, what was it that you were farming? Tomatoes. 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 Right off you, the bat. You, you mentioned you were called Tomato yeah. Dave, I believe. Yeah, yeah. That was, yeah uh, that's, that's, that's a nickname. And... Uh, I've, there's about 1,200 heirloom varieties of tomatoes in the world that have been, you know, they're true to their seed type mm-hmm. and they've been grown for generations in families. Like I'm sure there's several heirloom tomatoes in Greece. I don't know the names of them. Um, so I've tasted about 450 out of the 1,200. And my, one of my travel goals is to try and eat my way through all 1,200, which I'll never do. But um, 
But the, the really good tomatoes, uh, the yellow ones are good, the orange ones are good, but there's ones that are called black that are like a deep purple mm-hmm, color, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they usually have like mottled greenish shoulders. Yep. Yep. And, uh, and of the ones I've tried, the best ones come from the Crimea area, which politically is, you know, big time in the Don't news go right at the now. moment, yeah. And uh, it kind of has a salty flavor straight off the vine. Huh. And then there's another one called Nyagas, uh, which I think is like a Chechen name, and that one tastes smoky. Like it's been in the smoker right off the vine. Huh. Wow. So, yeah. I, see, this is what I love about these conversations. <laughs> I never quite know where they're going to go, and I didn't realize we were going to be talking about tomatoes. I do remember the tomato Dave introduction. Yeah, yeah. But this, this feeds very nicely into, uh, you know, one of the aspects of this unconventional lifestyle now. So I know that uh, – tell me a little bit more about what it is that you do. You build greenhouses, and I know that you build them out the back of an Airstream van. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, um, I have I actually have a Sprinter, a Mercedes Sprinter work van, and then I tow an Airstream separate, you know, a trailer behind mm-hmm, it, mm-hmm. and it's a small sixteen footer. But I've been living in that for three years, and then my business I run out of a storage unit, and uh, which is like ten feet wide, thirty feet long, and um, I keep all of my inventory and extra tools and those kinds of things in the storage unit. And then the van is completely, it's full of cabinetry in the back and it's open with a giant lumber rack. So it's, it's like a rolling hardware store. There's just two seats in the front that mm-hmm. are kind of nice, you know, um, driving, but, but it's a, it's a work setup. And then I park on site. It takes about six weeks to build each greenhouse and I can only build from April until November because the ground normally freezes in Montana mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. And so then I can travel, and I do every every winter. I go somewhere different, but when I'm working, I just move the camper, and I go to some of the most beautiful places in Montana, which to me are some of the most beautiful places in the world because I've been to all fifty states many times. I know America, that part, of the U.S. really well, and Hawaii is really pretty, but Montana's at the same level. Montana's stunning, yeah. Like just the the visual yeah. scenery. It's 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 the most. Uh, it's Montana is the most beautiful mistress that I will ever have in my life. Yep. And so for town. someone that hasn't been there, what when you're looking at Montana, it's it, it's mountains, it's plains, it's mountains and plains. What? The the well, the eastern side of the state, I actually haven't been there. I've only been there once. The eastern side of the state is kind of rolling hills and dry, kind of scrubby, sagey, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then. They call it big sky country. I don't know why, but it's basically when you're standing on the land, the sky's as big as when you're over the ocean. For some reason, the visual acoustics of how it works, the sky looks gigantic. And so there's only a million people that live in the state, and Montana's the third biggest state. So Montana's probably bigger than Greece, I'm going to guess. Like, I don't know the square. Yeah, I'll have to check that, but... So, so you don't have a lot of light pollution. So right. the stars are incredible, you know, yeah, yeah. and the largest city is a hundred thousand population and there's, that's called Billings. And then all the other, there's four other cities that are about 50,000. That's it. I mean, so okay. it's, so, so yeah, so big open skies, yeah. rolling hills, you basically just have the place life. to yourself. And then the mountains are huge and there's probably good night. There's probably 50 peaks above 3,500 meters. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and there's, there's some that are 4,000. 
I mean, and, and most of the cities, like the city that I live in, it's called Bozeman. And Bozeman's really starting to become well-known within like the, like the skiing community. Mm-hmm. Like Bozeman, just a few, uh, a week or so ago, they have a biathlon course that they upgraded so they qualify for the Olympic training uh, okay. for, yep. the, for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. So you'll start to see people, you know, Bo- Bozeman's, and Bozeman is growing really astronomically fast. And, and with that, it's very desirable uh, because you have those tall mountains, which are usually covered in, in a specific pine tree called the lodgepole pine. And it, it grows really thick together. It grows really slow and it grows really tall. So most mm-hmm. of the mountains mm-hmm. are covered in 100 and 150 foot tall, 200 foot tall wow. trees. Yeah. Kind of like Douglas fir, but it, yep. it's, it's a skinnier, it almost looks like grass the way it grows from a distance. It just grows thick and they kind of block each other out, compete to be the tallest one. Um, so you have the mountains covered in the trees and then you have the valleys in between the mountains. A lot of the valleys are glacially carved and created. Okay. So you have these long, like hundred mile long valleys are really yeah. typical. There's probably 20 valleys there, hundred miles long, you know, 10,000 foot mountains on each side of that valley. And then you can just stand at one end and see clearly straight across. And then the valleys are usually grass, but a lot of them all of them have at least one or two rivers mm-hmm. that goes through the mm-hmm. valley that meanders through. And then you have like the willows that grow on the edges of the rivers and, and those kinds of things. Sounds so stunning. The sun, yeah, it's yeah. crazy pretty. Yeah. yeah. So, so how Beautiful. did you, uh, so back to the greenhouses then, what, what is it about these greenhouses that you're building? What, what's, you know, what's tomato Dave's special touch for a greenhouse? Yeah. So Montana is very cold by like world standards the, the, the climate on the western side of the state where I live, where all the mountains are, is very similar to Alaska because the elevation mm-hmm. is so high. You know, like my city is at uh, 4,500 feet, 5,000 feet. And most of the cities, coincidentally, that are big are at about that elevation. And so a lot of world-class cl- athletes come to Montana to train mm-hmm. for what – even if they're in a warm-weather sport – they come there in the summer and they training. train because, yep. you know, there's less oxygen and, and they're, they're a little bit more fit when they go to compete. And so, so Bozeman's really a, uh, I shouldn't say this, Bozeman's really a special place because I really don't want the secret to get out. You don't want it, any more people moving But it in. has, <laughs> but it, it has. And so, you know, world-class athletes come together. Bozeman is one of the fittest towns I've ever been in, like, you know, and world-class climbers like Conrad Anchor, if you happen to know that name. Um, oh, gosh, like uh, a lot of competitive uh, uh, bicyclists like Greg LeMond lives in uh-huh. Big Sky, yep. which is right yep. outside of Bozeman. Um, we just draw we draw people that don't want to live in those cities anymore, and they want scenic beauty around them, and they want clean air. We're, we just don't have that many cars, so mm-hmm. it's just a beautiful experience when you're there. And it doesn't ever get really above 85 Fahrenheit. So, okay. yep. so it's just if if you don't like the heat, which I don't, then that's like mecca. Yeah. You know? And um, but if you want to grow something, you're going to need a greenhouse. Yeah. Yes. So yeah, you're you're. Uh, I think our our season to grow. If you're a gardener. You know, if there's any gardeners that are going to listen to this podcast, you have the the time between frosts, and that's your season. Obviously, yeah. when things freeze, a lot of plants are going to die. There's a lot of plants that can actually live through a frost, like kale, 
can take things, can go down to 18 Fahrenheit. But our season is 90 days in Bozeman. That's all we got. So as a, as a gardener, most, a really good tomato takes about a, 120 days from seed to get the fruit and to, to, to get the first harvest. And then you really want to harvest for about a month mm-hmm. because there's two types of tomatoes. One's indeterminate and one's determinate. The indeterminate tomato is more of a vine and it will continuously produce fruit until it dies. Yep. And the tastiest varieties, I think, are the indeterminates. And the determinates just put out all their fruit, and then the plant shuts down. And they're usually faster, so mm-hmm. they're not as tasty. The tastiest ones are the, are the vine ones. And so, um, so I had to create a greenhouse to extend that growing season. And that's the heart of my business is just extending the growing season. And, and then... To deal with the cold, it's very expensive to pay for energy to create heat. Mm-hmm. So I based the technology of my company, which is called Alpine Greenhouses, on residential passive solar 1970s California technology, which is really based on Greek and Turkish 5,000-year-old technology where you build your house into a hillside mm-hmm. facing south, facing directly south, and you, you build a courtyard, which gives the courtyard, a lot of people don't realize this, the courtyard, the, the, the stone walls are usually three or four feet high. And when the cold tries to come into a structure, it likes to come in low because co- cold falls, mm-hmm. you know, convectively. That's just what happens. And so the courtyard design prevents the cold from coming in around the edges it faces south where it's going to get the maximum exposure of the sun all during the day from the very dawn until dusk. And then the walls are, are these, these places in Turkey. I really want to go visit. There's one town. They're all built this way. Like whoever built the town was really intelligent and it's almost 5,000 years old. And so the walls are really thick. So they're insulated against the heat and against Mm -hmm. the cold. And so that's really where the California 1970s technology is based. Yep, yep. And uh, so my greenhouses really mimic that. The little trick that I do is on that giant, tall, north-facing wall, the, the wall facing south is short, mm-hmm. and the north-facing wall is tall, and, and the pitch that I have is the most optimal pitch for our latitude, which is about a five-and-a-half and that's the same as the photovoltaic companies. A lot of people confuse passive solar and photovoltaic solar. Photovoltaic creates electricity yep. in the panel. Passive just simply means that it sits there and it absorbs the sun's energy. Yep. And so the north wall of our greenhouses is insulated with reflective foil. So the whole north wall, which is usually 20 to 30 feet long and 10 feet tall, is a giant mirror. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so, the, so, and that's facing directly south. So after the first two or three hours in the morning, it really starts to create heat. It's basically, it is the same design as a solar oven, mm-hmm. if you've ever heard of those. Yep. And so it just, it just creates heat. And there's actually a focal point in it because of the, the, the mirror, because of the reflective foil. And it's kind of in the center of the greenhouse, a little bit more towards the f- south wall. And when you stand there, you can feel like you're standing in a heater. You just yeah, you feel yeah. the energy of the wow. heat. Wow! And so this is so you you're traveling around Montana primarily and putting these in exclusively right. in Montana or no other places? no the the Northwest um, is a, a big area for me. 
Uh, probably about 50% of my business is in Montana, but the rest is in Canada because we're right on the border of Canada, Washington, Idaho, Oregon, and Colorado. Basically, anywhere where you have that elevation and you have that cold mm-hmm. and you have that short growing season. Yep. And then with that, you also get all these other crazy climate things that the rest of the world is starting to get introduced to. But in Montana, this is the way it is. The winds occasionally, the winds every year will gust 80, 90, 100 miles an hour. Yeah. It's dependable. A 40 mile an hour wind is a regular thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the greenhouses mine are made for the wind. And then when you get a lot of snow, the snow has a lot of weight. Yes. It's called snow load on the roof. And so my greenhouses are specifically designed for that cold climate. Okay, so there, there really is something to an alpine greenhouse. Oh, it's very different from yeah. a regular yeah. greenhouse just because of those sorts yeah. of factors. You can't yeah. just whack up a hoop and throw some plastic over the top and hope to come back and find it there in the morning. <laughs> a lot of people do that. Too. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that happens. I, I, about half of my time, I go and fix what other people have tried to build, mm-hmm. honestly. And I charge, I kind of charge a penalty fee I charge $100 an hour to consult, but if I get called to fix something, it's $200 an hour. And I'm That's the way and, to do it. And people don't blink because they've created usually such a bad situation, they have to have me to tell them what to do. And I've been doing this now for 10 years, and so since my greenhouses create too much heat, which all greenhouses do in the summer, then I have become really knowledgeable about exhausting the air, uh, yes. venting the air, yeah. You vent it convectively, and then you vent it with power with the fans and heating it when it gets cold and balancing all that within a structure. And so I have not met another greenhouse company that does a good job. They really either create too much heat or they let it mm-hmm. get too cold mm-hmm. by the design, the engineering design on the back end. Yeah. And so um, not trying to sound arrogant, but there's probably just – maybe five people that know what I know about this kind of thing, just because it's so new. It's so unique. Yep. And and it's it's very niched. Yep. And so back then to the Airstream. So tell us a little bit about that. You obviously this works out, right? You're going to, I imagine these places are sometimes remote, but what is it about the, you know, the Airstream versus maybe just going and living in a motel? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, the Airstream, um, Man, I'm going to sound like a salesperson for Airstream because, like, like well, it's like, okay to like it. I mean, like, but before I had the, boat. <laughs> before I had the greenhouses, I had a cabinet shop, and I'm a carpenter by trade. So I, I built furniture, I built some of the finest kitchens, you know, in the U.S. And that's what I've done for years, you know, working with different woods and different finishes and different ways to attach things and screws and fasteners and adhesives and those kinds of things. So I could have built my own travel trailer. And I could have built a really great one specifically for me. Mm-hmm. And so, but I went to the Airstream dealer and I did my research online and they've been doing this for 50 years and they're really good at what they do. You know, they, they're the only company that makes a aluminum shell and then they insulate it within the walls. Mm-hmm. So it's actually double aluminum. It's aluminum on the exterior mm-hmm. riveted and it's aluminum on the interior riveted. And then in between they do, an insulation that's about two or three inches thick. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So, so the shell basically is, and, and that shell, like I can, I've, I've seen Airstreams on the side of the road. They're still great. The shell's still yep. great. And they're 40, 50 years old. They, they don't rust. They just mm-hmm. hold together. Mm-hmm. And then 
Airstream does a really good job with the axle technology. Supposedly, mine comes with a warranty that if anything ever happens to the axle, I get a new one. I don't know if I believe that, but um, I, I think they call it the never-ending axle or something. But um, Hopefully, it never ends. Yeah, but the, <laughs> the, the, the quality of the drivetrain and the quality of the shell are great. And then they work with all these other different suppliers that they make the propane heater and they make the propane stove and the propane oven um, and they they make the, the thermostat system. You know, like my Airstream is just like a house. I leave it. I, I upgrade it to have 60 gallons of propane and two 30-gallon yep. tanks on the front. And there's a nice little cover that covers that up. And I leave the thermostat on, you know, 55 or 60 Fahrenheit. And, and the heater just comes on and off. And that heater will come on and ignite automatically the pilot light and, like, going down the road like 80 miles an hour. No where problem. it works it's so bulletproof. It's so well done. You know, I've had little things go wrong, but, um, and then the design, the ergonomics, the design of where I sleep and where I go to the bathroom and where I cook and basically my living space. I mean, Airstream has been doing it for so long. They just, they, they've got it. Know how it works. And, and that's preferable to you to say being in a motel where you, you know, don't know. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can cook a fabulous meal on my little two burner stove mm-hmm. and my oven, and then I actually added a uh, a toaster, kind of British style. I like I like my toasters where they're not pop up, but you uh, yep, yep, lay it flat, lay it flat and then it has an air fryer switch. Uh, as long as I have enough electricity, I have to have a lot of electricity to run the air fryer. Um, and my van, I bought it used from a fire suppression company, so it came with the roof rack. It came with all the cabinetry for my tools to store in the back. It's a dually, so I can tow a trailer mm-hmm. with all my equipment. Um, and then it came with an inverter. And so, and it has a separate Optima battery, kind of similar to the way a lot of boats are set yep. up. Yep. And so when I'm driving, I'm constantly recharging that battery, and then I can draw 30 and 20 amps off of that battery with an extension cord to my Airstream. So, so I don't have to have... You know, I have water in the tanks. I have propane in the tanks for my heat and my cooking. Mm-hmm. And then I have electricity for my lights and my Wi-Fi. And so I have one of those, um, uh, it's called a hotspot in the U.S. Yep. And it's yep. like it's Mobile. like a modem that's, yep. that has a long antenna, so it'll really work in remote locations. So, yep. so yeah, Tim. Yeah, a SIM card in it or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah I live yeah. in some of the most beautiful places that people have bought a house and now they want a greenhouse so they can feed themselves. And I live there in my Airstream for six weeks. I usually have a view like I described earlier where I yep. walk out my door and I can see 50 miles across a valley and I'm in the mountains and uh, I'm really blessed. I'm really lucky. It's pretty amazing. The yeah. um, And... Uh, oh, what was I going to ask? I was going to say with, with, the, uh, oh, with the Airstream, you'd mentioned also that some people have i was interested in this idea you were talking about there's almost farm stays would like sometimes you take the airstream to a farm stay we're interested in learning a bit more about that yeah. idea too i haven't heard yeah. of that before yeah i don't know i don't know in europe or australia but in the states there's a new company called harvest hosts and, ah, that's it. Yes. and they they've just put an app together these apps are amazing how they're changing the world but the app connects any traveler with an organic farm or an organic ranch and, and or a winery, and the owners of those wineries, I don't think they actually pay to join 
the system, but when you as a traveler, you pay $80 as an annual fee, mm -hmm. and then you just simply go online when you're traveling, and you look to see who's going to be in the area that you're going to go, and then they always provide you a place to park your rig for free. There's mm -hmm. no fees. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, there's just the $80, and then there are no fees. Like a typical campground now in Montana, the fee is like $60 a night just to park there. Wow. Connect. And so... And then the ones in my town are $180 a night. So it's like, what? yeah. For so, a campground. Yeah, for, for a spot, you know. That's it's crazy. It's ridiculous. Yeah. So, so Harvest Host is really popular. because. And then the theory behind it, and it does work, is you, you're going to go to the winery. You're going to spend the night. Yep. You know, you've, you've, you're either by yourself or you have your family with you. And then the next day you wake up, and they've got food that you can buy. They've got wine that yep. you can buy. And so it ends up increasing the business of the host and then it gives you a free place. It's like a crazy win. That's win. a great idea. I love that idea. Yeah. And, and do you see lots of other people taking advantage of that or when you go there, you're often there by yourself? No, it's really popular, Tim. I, yeah. I think a big part of it is how expensive it has become. Yep. But the other part of it is just these places are like where I, when I'm building a greenhouse, they're usually really pretty. You know, wineries are gorgeous. Yep. And, the thing about farming and, and, and wineries and ranches, you always have extra space. Like, you know, in the city to park, you know, 12 rigs with a camper would be taking up a whole city block. But yeah. but when you own a winery, it's like, oh, yeah, over there, there's I'm not using that. Yeah, and if they buy a few bottles of wine uh, throughout right. the week, that's right. probably pretty good value. And they don't have any infrastructure. So they just give you a flat place to mm -hmm. park your rig. You get You get no electricity. You can get water sometimes. And no septic hookup, you know. And so, but for me, you know, I have the, I fill up my water tank yep. and then I have a black tank for storage and I just have to drain those every week or two. And then I can generate my own power so I don't need electricity. And then I'm, I just have to fill the propane tanks. Like, nice. that's the biggest duty that I have to do. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And so, Okay, so you went to Montreal and as a junior in college. Yep. And then what was your next overseas trip? My next overseas trip, well, after that I went to Hawaii and Alaska, but that's okay. still America. Still so America, I went to yep. those two. And then uh, when you go to Alaska, you pass through that western side, Vancouver, Canada, mm -hmm. and then... Then the next place I went was Mexico, and I had been all over Mexico. So that's 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 really it touches America, you know, on the land. But yep. but I tend to go to the beaches on the west coast, mm -hmm. which are really pretty. Yeah. And um, so I went there, and then I went to Germany and Austria was my first across the Atlantic trip. But I didn't do that until I was in my thirties, actually, when I lived in Montana. And uh, I used to be in sales, and I worked for a machine vision company. Mm -hmm. And the best machine vision company is in Munich. And we we were just the satellite office for them. And they're called Stimmer Imaging, and, and they're so good. So I went there to train, yep. you know, and uh, machine vision is quality control, inspection in factories using cameras yep. and software so, and lighting. So what did that sort of feel like moving from, you know, you've been around the Americas, North right. America, right. Canada, Canada, the US, Mexico, right. and now you're here in Europe. It's a work trip, work trips. I've done a lot of those. They can be right. different. They're not necessarily exposing you to the culture, but to, 
you know, what did that sort of feel like being in Munich? Um, oh God, I, yeah. I, I I have a part of me that just instantly I enjoyed Europe, you know, especially Munich. And then since I was working for Stimmer, it really wasn't like I was a tourist or a businessman because everyone else lived there, mm-hmm. and like people invited me to their houses every night for dinner, or we would go out as a group, you know, to a really good tavern, and. You know, they have these laws in Germany about the beer, and there's only like four ingredients, and the beer yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, we would do these, the, the company would, would buy those little wooden kegs, and then you put on a leather apron and you yeah. tap the, I mean, you know, there's like, a, <laughs> and there's like, you know, toasting all around. And so it felt very almost family, you know, small community oriented. Um, and, I, and, and then the Germans, I'm a big efficiency guy. My greenhouses are, my greenhouses are 80% more efficient than any other greenhouse I know on the, in the world market. So if you're going to spend $100 a month to heat one greenhouse, you'll spend 20 to heat mine. So efficiency is a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. And the Germans are awesome in efficiency, like the way their doors close, the seals they use, the yeah. windows, the escalator stops working, you know, stops running when no one's on it. Yeah. So yeah. I was really impressed, you know, with – Kind of, kind of. I guess the whole European mindset is one around not wasting anything, and so tends to be a a, a very big focus in Europe. I think, uh, particularly that part of Europe, on environmentally being environmentally conscious, um, zero waste, closed ecosystems, sustainability, sustainability. Yeah, Yeah. and there's still a lot of small farms that supply the food, you know, to Germany, and I'm and I'm a huge foodie. That's actually what's driven all of this. You know, my love for the tomato is a as a five-year-old, um, just led me into exploring more and more about food and then ultimately into organic farming, in which case I invented my greenhouses for my own farm. Mm. And then my neighbors that were ranchers, they would come over to visit, and uh, you, you and your listeners may not believe this, but they would come over in the summer, they would walk in my greenhouses, our greenhouses, and they were 17 feet tall, and the, the tomatoes usually hit the ceiling and wow. went out the vents. Wow. So you would walk in to see hundreds of 17-foot-tall, fully-fruited tomatoes in full production. And so they instantly were like, Dave, can you build us a small version of this at our house? Yep. And that, so for a while, I actually farmed and built greenhouses just maybe one or two a year. And then, and then it, it became really clear that there's a lot more profit in making a greenhouse than there is in selling a tomato. <laughs> <laughs> because because yeah. tim you don't really buy food you just rent it for a few days <laughs> so people aren't going to pay a lot of yep. money yep. to rent something yes whereas you know if they're going to buy an audi i had to think about that for a second i've got you now yeah, i've got you it's, it's very <laughs> subtle but it's true yeah, yeah you're just constantly you know ingesting In, and, and getting rid getting of getting rid of yep. yeah and so you're not going to pay a lot for it there you go and so finally now you you're here in greece and um, tell us a bit about that. I know, and I've, this is very near and dear to my heart, which is you have a dream to go sailing and you decided that this is where you wanted to come and do it. Tell, tell me a little bit first about that dream. I'm always interested in that because, you know, it's very much the dream Karina and I had, which is to get on a right. boat and travel right. around. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit about that. Montana's a long way from the sea. And then why here? What was it about this spot? Honestly, the the real driver was economic for me, and it was timing because I wanted to go to a good sailing school. There's really only about ten in the world, a good 
RYA officiated sailing schools. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then at this time of year in March, I think there's only three that open up this early. Okay. The rest of them don't open until more summertime in North America. And so I didn't actually look at Australia or, or New Zealand or Asia. I didn't even, I didn't even look at South America. And so, um, this, the one here, the, the Aegean sailing school, which is great. Um, they were one of three that my choices were. And then, of course, in my mind, I was like, well, it's going to be Greece, so it's going to be warm, which is <laughs> not the case at no. this time of year. <laughs> it's been so, really cold. And so, um, so yeah, I, I made the, the choice there. But then also, I'm a big history buff. Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, Greece, you know, was before Rome. And so, and, and you know, all of the myth- mythology and all of the wars and all of the nautical history, because there's so many islands here, you know, I've always been fascinated with that. So Greece has been on the top of my list to go and visit. You know, I I would slowly like to make my way around the world. And since I have the winters off, and then if I learn to sail, which I've taken the the first week's course, then my original plan was to buy a boat and then travel the world. Now that I know more about sailing and crossing the ocean, I might just keep a boat in some country or, or charter a boat and travel. Yeah. Yeah. But um, it's funny you say that. Not not funny, haha. But it, it is um, sailing's one of those things. Like I, it's a very common it's a very common thing that I hear from people is like I, I want to own a boat. I want to sail. I want to do the world and tour the world and and do all of these things. And you know, one of the first questions is is literally, and it was the first question to myself too, which is like, but have you ever actually been sailing before? No, 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 but I, I love it. It is a dream. <laughs> Tell right. us a little bit about that because I think the experience when you actually got out here, the weather wasn't great last week and uh, that changed your mind on the permanently living aboard boat a little bit. Yeah, for, for me, you know, Tim, you're, you're, uh, you're really touching on the fact that for me, I've actually sailed a lot on a really small Hobie Cat, which is a catamaran, mm-hmm. you know, twin hold. And that boat is uh, world worldwide famous for yep. you tilt up on one of the holes in the wind and you go really fast, yep. which I, I, you know, I talked to you about the speed thing earlier. So, but that's completely different than a mono hold heavy sailboat going through the water. The sensation, the speed is lower. Uh, the logistics, the, 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 the controls, you know, the Hobie cast really simple. You do everything with your hands. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just a couple of pulleys on the whole system. You know, obviously with a big sailboat, the sails are so big, you've got the heavy lines, you need yep. the winches to be yep. able to move things. You need the tools for the winches. Mm-hmm. You need the tools to fix the winches. You need the motor when the wind's not blowing. Yep. You know, you need the galley down below so you can feed yourself while you're on the water. Um, so the, the logistics involved are more complicated. And then the rolling of the bigger boat is kind of slower. And I just physically, I got seasick quite often. And so um, that made me think that I still love it, but I need to stay away from the large waves like yeah. we had last yeah. week. Yeah. I mean, we're sitting up here at the moment in our apartment, looking out over the harbor and out over the sea. Today, you'd have no problem. This is a beautiful day. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's cool, but the the ocean out there is... It's not as flat as I've seen it, but it's pretty flat. Oh, yeah. It's, it's pretty lovely. flat. Last this... last week, it was, I mean, it was rolling. We wouldn't have gone out in those conditions. Yeah, conditions. there were a lot of white horses A lot last of white week. horses around yeah. a lot of, and a lot of rolling and things like that. Yeah. Um, but that's interesting. Like, I think that that's, that's a really, 
that's the right way to do it, right? Like the right way to do it is to go out and get some experience and to actually, right? You know, people say, oh, I don't know, you know, why would I spend? It's I don't know. It's probably fifteen hundred, two thousand dollars or something for the sailing course, right? Right. I guess. Right. Um, why would I spend that money? Because now that you've done it and you've had that experience for a week, it's a lot cheaper than having bought a boat and oh, realizing yes. oh my that you didn't like yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, uh, you know, there's that old joke about boats, you know, the second best day of your life is when you buy the boat and then yeah. the best day of your life is when you sell it. And so um, definitely in that situation, that would have been true, you know. So, yeah. But, uh, you know. But you find it, what you like too, right? Right. Like now you know where you want to focus. Exactly. And somewhere with islands that you yeah. can cruise around and exactly. you don't want to go across the Atlantic. and right. Yeah, but um, I really have loved being here because I get to look at the descendants of you know Odysseus, and and th- this is th- this is some of the most famous history in the world, you know, in in our time, and so you know I get to hang out with these people and chat with them, even though I don't speak Greek, you know. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Fortunately, and, and, some of them speak English. Yeah, and, and also an interesting. Um an interesting trip too, in the sense I would say you're an unconventional traveler in in the way that you you've come here to Greece and this is your first time in Greece. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So you come here yeah. to Greece and and your first time in Greece, you've spent so far pretty much the entire time here on Aegina. Mo- yeah, or the other island. When we were on the boat, we went to four other islands, right. or, the or, or on the boat, yeah. popping around right. a couple of other islands. But right. that, that, I would say that's fairly unconventional as well. But what have you enjoyed about being here on this? I mean, I love this island, but what, right. as someone coming from the US and from Montana, you know, what's been your impression of, of Egina as an island and the kind of culture here? Oh God! Well, you know, I mean, there's so many islands that make up the country of Greece, and so the island lifestyle, to me, really is the heart of Greece you know, not the mainland part of Greece. Um, so Agena is one of those island towns. And, I mean, Agena is a little bit spoiled. Like, you know, Agena is, what, an hour, hour and a half ferry from Athens? 40 minutes on the Which is a city ferry, yeah. of 6 yeah. million people. Yeah. And so they can get over here for, we were talking like $8 on the ferry. Yep. You live in Athens, $8, you're over here. So the shops and the shopping are very impressive. And, and to me, the architecture is several hundred years old for the buildings and the mm-hmm. walkways. And there's not enough room, thank goodness, for cars to drive on some of the, a lot of the streets here, which are made for pedestrian traffic. So it makes it so quaint and so beautiful, like in that old European way. Um, I had a local, I met her the other day, and she was telling me that not too long ago, Agena switched over from their old taxis, which basically it kind of looked like Cuba when you were here. They were like, <laughs> she told me, she told me the model of the car, and it was, it was an American car with fins on it. Oh, and wow. that was what your taxi was until like maybe ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could believe that. Yeah, so, yeah, and and you know, the, I don't know the name of the the fishing boat that's Greek styled, where the front of the boat and the back of the boat are shaped to move through the water the same uh, yeah. our, our river boats in montana had the exact same mm-hmm. hull structure yeah, no, i don't know what they're called i, I know what you mean I can see yeah and yes, then yeah. their their design it looks like it hasn't been changed in a couple hundred years oh no it hasn't yeah. it's just classically yeah, it's just... beautiful tim it's just you know and, and then you get the fact that it never freezes here so so you're the opposite of montana the growing season here is literally 12 months you can grow anything here as a gardener mm-hmm. 
the soil looks like it's okay. It might be a little rocky, but you can you can you can grow like the guy has a there's a florist shop about three blocks from here yep. that I went by today on my way over. And the guy actually does I thought he had a farm where he was growing everything at the shop. No, he just has it in pots. Yeah. And he just, grows, just grows everything <laughs> right there. So yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. stunningly yeah. Lov- lovely here. Yeah, no, it is it is very nice. Um and just to sort of like sort of I guess start to wrap up, but the final question now, you've you've been here, you've been in Egina, you've done the sailing. You know, what's sort of next for, for Dave? Uh bigger tomato empire or more travel? Oh, the tomato. The tomato fuels my life. It's very strange, Tim, but um so Central and South America is where the tomatoes originally came from, and yeah. that's where the original ones still are. So I have been to Costa Rica. I forgot to mention that. And, uh, and then for me, I didn't realize, but Greece is too cold for me during the winter months. And that's, that's, the, that's <laughs> yeah. the time that yeah. I have off. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really, really love it here but, um, and would come back in a heartbeat. But for my winter, I'll probably go somewhere like Costa Rica it's, or it's New Zealand or Australia yeah. where it's you know, in the summertime for me. Um, but really, honestly, it'll – Tomatoes if you think will Greece contri- is too cold for you in winter. You are not going to like New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's oh. colder than here. Oh, no, in, it is oh. definitely colder than okay, here. Okay, in the if summertime. Oh, in there because their, their summer oh, would your, be my yeah. Your winter, no, right? Okay, they're, no, their summer nice. You'd like that. You'd okay. Like that. This, that, I think yeah. Greece would be too hot for you in summer. Oh yes, it'd yeah. be way too hot for you in summer. Yeah. And so, but I think you'd find yeah, yeah. The, the the winters. Yeah, sorry, your winters, New Zealand summers. Yeah. it's like seventy, yeah. no, no more than eighty yeah. Fahrenheit. So, yeah, you know, average is sort of yep. probably yeah. twenty to twenty-five centigrade. Okay, kind of yeah. summer's day in New Zealand, maybe thirty occasionally. Yeah, I'll go. I don't know. You're from Australia. How are the tomatoes in Australia? <laughs> you know that. Well, okay. So it's been it's been a while, but I will say that my my impression of tomatoes in Australia has not been good. Um, just just based on the fact that if I think about, you know, when have I ever gone wow about a tomato? It's been, or a tomato, uh, it's been here, right? Like when I get to Greece. Yeah, I didn't go wow. I didn't go wow about tomatoes in right. Right. in the US. Maybe maybe some heirloom ones from farmers markets and right. things like that. Right. You know. Right. But it, it, you know, really, it, it's it's been when we've come here, and uh, you know, when you go back to Athens, you should definitely go to the farmers market in the center of town, okay. the central market. I'll do and that. See oh yeah, yeah. The fresh fruit and veg. Yeah. And what's different here, and it's hard to adjust to coming from the U.S., is that everything is seasonal, and that's the best way. Right, yes, to that's eat, the best way to, to eat. Good that's food. how I actually eat in the yeah, states. Because yeah. you can't in in California, you know, at Safeway. You can get anything at any time of year. <laughs> right. It often tastes crap, but, right? right? Exactly. Like it tastes like rubbish, right. but right. that's because it's not meant to grow at that time, or right. it's been grow, or if it's an apple, it was grown and it's been in cold store for a year, or right. whatever it is. Right? You know, like it's just not the same. Whereas if you buy an apple from the markets here, they're fresh. Nice. They're, if there's an apple there, it's because apples nice. are in season, or whatever yeah. it is. So everything is seasonal. Right. Um, Montana is actually the same. Because okay. I think because we're so remote, we can't get that shipping that you get in California. Uh, okay. Yeah, it's yeah. not quite yeah. there. So, so I'd say tomatoes in Australia are a little bit the same. Um, New Zealand, you think greenhouse? Uh, yeah. I, I mean, okay. 
don't, don't we're great. New Zealand's not really tomato country. Okay. It's, a, right. you know, so it's pretty cool. Costa Rica it's might really be. Cool. I, might I mean, they, they might need some of your greenhouses down yeah. there if they're going to oh, grow yeah. tomatoes. Okay. So, oh, yeah. that's what I mean, okay. it's, it's, New Zealand sounds a lot like the way you describe Montana to me, which okay. is like it's a very small, volcanic, but very steep. Yep. Steep mountains. Um, and they have cold winters? Very cold winters. Oh, wow. Yes, I didn't a lot know of snow. Okay. okay. Um, but particularly on the southern island, sort of snow down to sea level. Um, you know, wow. not necessarily sticking right. for a long time, but right. lots of snow in the mountains. Right. Um, yeah. That's a lot yeah, like Montana. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's definitely a, a fun place to be. Yeah. A, a little history, Tim, yeah. for you and the listeners. The red tomato is strategic. Out of all the colors of the tomato, the red tends to have a slightly thicker skin. Huh. It tends to look better, and it tends to last longer in shipping. And so now the farmers and the horticulturists, they have milked that for all it's worth, and they have bred through cross-pollinating and, and breeding over, yeah. the, over the, the years, the decades. They've bred a beautiful red tomato that they can, they can actually pick it green, fill a truck full of it in Alabama and then put it in a, a, a refrigerated truck that has an ethylene yep. gas right and that gas is yep. exposed as the driver's going across the states and it turns the tomato a beautiful red color. But for that beauty, you sacrifice taste. Mm -hmm. They're totally mm -hmm. inversely related. And then that's, that's the tomato industry worldwide. Yep. That's why predominantly most people think of a, of a great red tomato, but that's, it's really marketing. It's really what looks good and what ships well, because the ones that are really flavorful, they bruise easily. The yellow mm -hmm. ones, the orange ones, mm -hmm. the purple ones, they don't, they, they, they get um, very soft really quickly. You know, mm -hmm. like when a tomato is really ripe, it's kind of crisp when you bite into it, it shouldn't be mushy. Yeah. And so, um, just a little tidbit for the, for the, you and the listeners, you know. Excellent. Well, Dave, thank you very much for your time on the podcast. It's been a pleasure chatting to you about your journey from Montana here to Greece and, yeah. and back again and learning a lot more about tomatoes along the way and more about the greenhouses. Uh, hope you enjoy your trip back and uh, thanks, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure, Tim. All right, cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode of Footloose. Feedback is always welcome at Timbull on Twitter. That's T-I-M-B-U-L-L. -L. Catch you next time.